Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, I welcome you to Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to our very first show in our normal Tuesday time slot. I hope you're ready for some fantastic stories today. What we have is a bit of an Earth-themed show. We have two stories for you, one called To Measure the Earth, and the second For the Love of Paul Bunyan. So, sit back, get a drink, relax. We've got some stories for you. Our first story, To Measure the Earth, was written by Jedediah Berry. Jedediah is the award-winning author of The Manual of Detection. His short stories have appeared in Conjunctions, Ninth Letter, Tor.com and the Chicago Review and in anthologies including Best New American Voices and Best American Fantasy. He teaches in the Written Arts Programme at Bard College, and you can have a look at his thirdarchive.net for more details. The story is read for you by Veronica Giger. Veronica V. Giger is a voice artist and author whose work can be heard on a wealth of podcast fiction magazines, full casts and audiobooks, across genres such as science fiction, fantasy, horror, romance and steampunk. She is the narrator and producer, as well as one of four co-authors, of the Secret World Chronicles podcast novel series, currently in its seventh season. Along with Cedric Johnson, she has recently podcast Broken, an inner-city cyberpunk story involving boxing, medical technology and coffee. When she isn't bringing the voices in others' heads to life, V masquerades as a mild-mannered academic whose specialities include first-year student success, learning strategies, and preparing for the zombie apocalypse. You can learn more about her and her voicing projects at voicesbyveronica.com. So, dear listener, 
without further ado, To Measure the Earth by Jedediah Berry. To Measure the Earth Written by Jedediah Berry Read by Veronica Jagger She dwelt on the highest peak of the Catskills, and had charge of the doors of day and night to open and shut them at the proper hour. She hung up new moons in the skies, and cut up the old ones into stars. Diedrich Knickerbocker Spring, 1890 Roll got out of bed before the fireflies had quit their nighttime signaling. He took his hat from the bedpost, strapped on his wooden right leg, and went downstairs to stoke the fire. Netta had never been able to sleep through the thudding of her husband's leg on the steps, and the steps creaked, each one. She threw the covers aside and went to the kitchen to make their breakfast of blood sausage and buckwheat cake. They ate without speaking because they had a rule about that. Then they went outside to load the cart with things the spirits wanted. They packed worn left boots, broken chairs, clean underclothes, fingernail cuttings, a bucket of ash, peach stones, and left-over buckwheat cake. Netta almost said something when Roll added three sacks of Indian corn to the pile, along with an alarm clock and two wool blankets. That was more than they'd ever sent over, and the blankets would be missed come winter, assuming they hadn't starved by then. Netta went to chop firewood, and Roll drove the cart down the rutted trail that skirted the fields. To one side, the light of a waning moon fell on pale shoots spotted with disease. On the other, the spirits had hung their lanterns in the pines. The lights swayed and guttered when the wind blew, but did not go out. Beyond were the lightless mountains, and the stark slope called the Wall of Manitou. Some fool had built a hotel up there when Roll was a boy, and other fools from the city still came by steamship, then by train, then by stagecoach to pass a few weeks on that windy, cloud-dampened peak. With his good eye he could see them on clear days— the men in their top hats, the ladies in their bell-shaped dresses, gliding along behind the tall columns of that hotel façade like clockwork figures. But none of the guests were awake at this hour, and the hotel was a dark lump in the sky. The mule knew where to stop. Roll got down and took some of the offerings from the cart, set them in a pile on the spirit's side of the trail. He sprinkled ashes over the top of the pile. Then he rode on, and he did not look back. After three more stops, nothing was left except the corn, the alarm clock, and the blankets. Roll had come to the worst part of the fields, where the earth was turned to swamp. Nothing grew here but onion grass and ostrich fern. On the other side of the trail was a broad meadow. The lanterns hung alongside its edges were dimming as the morning brightened. Roll removed his wooden leg and took out the tobacco and pipe hidden inside it. He smoked until the sun came over the trees. Then he strapped the leg back on and gathered the last of the offerings in his arms. He said, You don't see the ghosts of dogs when they play in the snow. And he walked into the meadow. The lanterns brightened a moment and went out. Roll left bundles of corn among the roots of the trees, making sure not to look into the woods. The soil under his feet felt like any other, but he could smell that it was different. The land his grandfather cleared had gone sour. This land was rich and old, and anything could grow here. Anything would. At the far end of the meadow he spread a blanket on the ground, as though for a picnic. 
He didn't sit on it, though, only wound the clock and left it there. He laid the second blanket at the center of the meadow and set a bowl on it, then filled the bowl with pieces of red sugar candy from his pocket. The mule's name was Mule. The animal understood little of what Roll was doing, but he wanted no part of it, and Roll had to drag him down off the trail. He chuckled and said, "'Come on, your children will thank me for it.' He piled stones into the cart, stopping now and then to adjust his leg. Some of the stones were too heavy for one man to move. Those he left in the dirt. He had circled the outer edge of the meadow once when he noticed the spirit sitting on the blanket at its center. Roll had known a spirit would come, but the shape of the thing surprised him, and when he saw its face he nearly cried out to it. That was a mistake enough. The spirit saw that Roll saw. It put a piece of candy in its mouth and said, "'It's good. How did you get Mom to use the cinnamon?' Roll knew better than to answer a question like that, and went on with his work. But his hands were shaking, and the next stone slipped out of his fingers. The spirit crunched the candy in its mouth, and watched as Roll bent down, got the stone up against his shoulder, hoisted it into the cart. The spirit rose from the blanket and walked toward him. "'Looks like you could use some help,' it said. Buell made an unhappy sound in his throat. Roll remembered something his father used to say to vex him, and thought he'd try it now. He asked the spirit, "'Is it as hot in the summer as it is in town?' The spirit closed its eyes and frowned, then went back to the blanket to think about that. Roll circled the meadow once more, gathering stones, while the spirit sat and ate candy. The sun reached the top of the sky and the fog lifted. The spirit stayed, though, and the longer Roll worked, the closer he drew to its blanket. When the candy was gone, the spirit said to Roll, "'All you have to do is ask me to help, and I'll help. Some of those stones are too heavy for one man to move.' They aren't bothering anyone, Roll said. When he looked up, the spirit was standing right in front of him. The boy the spirit was wore nothing on his feet, but his feet were clean. He was shirtless and stood with his chest thrust forward. His hair was brown and dirty. It hung down over very blue eyes. Roll said, Do you walk to school or bring your lunch? The boy ignored that. Why don't you ask me to help you? Just say my name and ask. Roll coughed to keep himself from speaking. He lifted another stone into the cart. The meadow was almost cleared. You sent all the field hands home, the boy said. You think it's a job we can never finish together. But you have to stay a long time now. You can't claim the meadow and leave it. Roll lifted the last few stones into the cart, then took up the mule's reins and began to lead it back toward the trail. But the boy stood in front of him, put his hand on his chest. "'Dad,' he said, "'please stay.' The hand was warm, and Roll realized how cold he was, despite the sun, despite the work. And why not stay? The meadow was as good a place as any. The soil there was rich and old. He could stay with the boy and sit on the blanket with him. He could smoke his pipe and maybe have some peace, and when the sun went down they could watch the spirits light their lanterns in the trees. All these years, and Roll had never seen the spirits light their lanterns. He just had to say the child's name. He knew it better than his own. At the far end of the clearing, the alarm clock began to ring. 
The spirit stepped away from him, its face pale. It put its hands over its ears and shouted, What is that? It's horrible! The sound had nudged Roll from his daze. I'm going home, he said. You'll have to turn it off yourself or wait until it winds down. The spirit spat at Roll's feet and ran off. It's horrible, it said. You're horrible. I hate you. Roll led Mule onto the trail and back toward the house. He walked for a full minute before the alarm was silenced. Then there was no sound at all. The offerings he had left at the side of the trail were gone now. Out in the pines, the lanterns lit as he passed. Roll didn't look at them. He did not look back. When Roll came into the kitchen, Netta was at the table, asleep with her head hanging over the back of her chair. Both her hands were wrist-deep in a bowl of bread dough. Roll checked the stove. He stirred the coals with a poker and added a few pieces of wood. Then he tilted his wife's head forward and took her hands out of the bowl. She had big hands, bigger than his, and they were cold. He held them to his mouth and breathed on them, licked off some of the dough. Netta's sleeping sickness had come on soon after their wedding, when he'd moved her from town out to the farm. He had learned that it was better to let her sleep, let her wake when she was ready to wake. He took a deck of cards from their hiding place in the seat of his chair, played a game of solitaire. He lost quickly, shuffled, and started over. He was losing again when Netta woke. She frowned at the cards and set the bowl aside. The dough had risen while she slept. She got up to fix their dinner, and Roll gathered the cards, put them back under the panel in the seat of his chair. "'Where's Louisa?' he asked. Netta said, "'You saw a spirit today.' She always knew too much when she woke from one of those sleeps. Roll grumbled, which meant he didn't want to talk about it. Netta set bowls on the table and ladled stew into them. She asked, "'What was its name?' We have to know its name if we're going to figure out what it wants. Roll ate a few spoonfuls and said, Doesn't that girl eat? Is there such a thing as a boarder that doesn't eat your food? You cleared that meadow, Netta said. Tell me what the spirit looked like, at least. Had like a garlic clove or a melon? Were its feet webbed? Did it have bird's wings? No, Roll said. Nothing like that. He finished his dinner in a hurry, and went into the parlor, lit the lamp. He took his grandfather's journal out from under the family Bible, and set it on the table, opened it to the pages from 1841. February 20. Indian corn at the roots of the older trees distracts them while we work. More lights along the border tonight. Strange sounds from the well. Wind picking up. February 21st. Sophie looking better this morning, but weak again by sundown. She finished her quilt, and I finished the whiskey. February 22. Woke late. Colder today. Stronger wind. Sharpened tools and baked a pie. Netta was standing in front of him, her arms crossed. She knew he couldn't read while she stood like that. It was a boy, he said without looking up. It looked like a boy, that's all, and I want to forget about him. Netta stopped herself from saying anything. She went back into the kitchen and filled a bucket with water, took that and a scrub brush upstairs to a little room at the end of the hall. Inside was a perfectly made bed, 
a trunk, and on the floor a pair of small boots. It was the cleanest room in the house, but Netta got on her knees and began to scrub. She worked with both arms, pausing only to drag the bucket closer as she went. When she came to the boots, she set them aside and scrubbed the floor beneath them, then put the boots back. She worked until she heard Roll come thumping up the stairs, heard the bed creak under his weight. Then she dropped the scrub brush into the bucket and went to the door at the back of the room. She could hear Louisa in the attic, singing one of her forgetting songs. The words sounded to Netta like rules for a game too dangerous to be worth playing. Sun come up, fetch a pail of water. Moon come up, scatter out your bones. The king is in his wooden shoes walking on the mountain. The moon is in his mountain shoes walking on your bones. Netta did not go all the way up the stairs, only far enough to poke her head up through the floor. She and Roel called Louisa the border, only because she'd always been called that, and because none of them had a better word for what she was. The girl wore the same blue house dress she'd been wearing for two weeks, seated at her desk at the far end of the attic. She had a book open in front of her. It was the primer that Netta had made. Louisa said, Your boy speaks for those others now. Netta looked down at her hands. They were red and puffy from the work. I miss him, too, Louisa said, but I'm trying to forget more than one name. What if there was no boundary any more? Netta asked. What if we let the fields go, let the house go, too? Louisa closed the book and ran her hands over the cover. We'd need a new man, she said. Summer, 1890 Just south of what had been the beet patch, a young man wearing a sack suit and bowler hat stepped out of the woods and onto the trail. He took a long canvas bag off his shoulder and laid it gently on the grass, then brushed himself off, taking special care to remove all the burrs from his striped trousers. Next, he took a compass from his pocket, looked at it, looked at the hotel on top of the mountain, and shook his head. His name was Cyrus Makeley, and he was lost. The trail-edged fields of sickly vegetation, one crop verging indiscriminately upon another. If not for the ribbon of smoke rising from the chimney of the farmhouse, he would have thought the place was abandoned. He hefted his equipment and followed the trail toward the house, passing a caved-in barn and something that might once have been a chicken coop. The house was built of the yellow stone he had seen used in the older Dutch homes in town. But this building's gable roof was sunken, its latticework broken and bare. The house was slumped to one side, staring at itself in the green-rimmed pool to the east. Or was it the southeast? All his readings had been off since he stepped into those woods, and now the sun was nearly touching the top of the mountain. Cyrus thought again that he should have taken his father's advice and applied for the post in Tarrytown, closer to New York, to civilization. He climbed the steps and crossed the creaking porch to the door. It swung inward at the knock. He nudged it further and called into the dim hall beyond. No answer, but at the opposite end of the house he saw a room bright with orange light. He walked over wide black floorboards to a cluttered kitchen, warm with steam from a kettle over the fire. On the table, baskets of strawberries, raspberries, and red mulberries were encircled by heaps of tomatoes, cabbage, bush beans, muskmelon, and ears of Indian corn. 
Here was a great block of cheese, a loaf of black bread, a bowl overflowing with cherries, crystals of red sugar candy clinging to pieces of string. How hungry he was, and on the table a place was set as though for him. He plucked strawberries from the basket, tore pieces of bread from the loaf, cut chunks of cheese, and stacked them on the plate. Then he grew impatient, and put the food straight into his mouth instead, using his fingers to push slices of muskmelon over his tongue, taking cherries by the handful, and spitting out the pits. He was reaching for more when a girl in a dirty blue house-dress stepped out of the pantry. Cyrus got up and stepped away from the table. He swept his hat off his head and tried to apologize, but his mouth was full. The girl's hair was black and straight, and Cyrus thought she must be part Iroquois, though he had never seen their women, only a few of their men laying railway track along the river. "'Sit,' she said. She walked past him and took a pitcher from the shelf, poured water into a cup. Cyrus swallowed the food in his mouth and sat down. "'My name is Cyrus Makeley,' he said. "'I was lost.' The girl pushed the cup into his hand. "'You still are.' The water was clear and cool. He quickly finished the cup, and the girl refilled it from the pitcher. "'You must be tired,' she said. He was tired, and the air in the kitchen was so warm and still. It felt like a little world of its own, separate from the whole of the earth, yet complete. He felt he could sleep right there, sleep for a very long time. But then he remembered his employers, Mr. Paddle and Mr. O'Hearn, and his employer's employers, Mr. Mares and Mr. Lewis, and their client, Mr. Beach, the owner of the mountain house. They were going to build a train, a new kind of train to go straight up the mountain. But none of the work could begin until Cyrus brought them his measurements. For a land surveyor, getting lost was a very poor excuse. He stood and faced the girl. She had been so kind, surely she would understand that he was expected elsewhere. He would ask her the way to town, offer to come back and pay for the food he had eaten. She came closer, stood so her nose nearly touched his cravat. He felt her warmth added to the warmth of the room. She whispered, "'There are rules, Cyrus Makeley. I saw you come out of the woods. You've eaten in this house.' And I know your name. A woman came into the kitchen from the garden door. Her thick gray hair was gathered in a bun at the top of her head. She had large hands, and in one of those hands was an axe, the blade smeared with blood and feathers. She was the most terrifying thing Cyrus had ever seen. I caught one, the girl said to her. Cyrus ran. In a moment he was out of the kitchen and away down the hall, but his escape was blocked by a man who stood on the porch on one leg. His other leg, a thick wooden post with a great black boot mounted to one end, was in his hands. From the hallway the girl shouted, "'Roll! No!' With a thoughtful-sounding grunt the one-legged man heaved the muddy boot in the air and swung it as Cyrus had seen railroad workers swing hammers at spikes. It was a remarkable display of balance, and the boot struck him squarely on top of his head. Cyrus Makeley dreamed he had to memorize the names of twenty tribes of savages. If he succeeded, the chiefs would tell him how to measure the earth using only water, a thimble, and a piece of string. If he failed, 
they would pluck out his eyes and make them into toys for their daughters. I know so few of your names, Cyrus admitted. Only think of a map, one of the chiefs counseled him. Your people name places for what they killed there. Fall, 1890 On clear mornings, the mountains looked so close that Cyrus felt he could reach out and touch them, could burn his hand on those wild red ranges. He liked to linger in his room as long as he could, breathing the cool air from the window, listening to the crows in the old barn, counting the boarder's footsteps on the floor above. He would wait until he heard Roll's leg on the steps, then dress and go downstairs to breakfast. By the time he returned from his work in the fields each day, the lights of the hotel were gleaming on the peak. Seeing them made him feel he had forgotten something, something important. But then the spirits lit their lanterns in the pines, and looking at those lights made him forget his forgetfulness. "'Don't stare too long,' Louisa once warned. So when he did look at the lanterns, he counted to twenty and turned away. He did a lot of counting. Sixty-eight days that he'd lived with Roll and Netta. Thirteen steps from the landing to the ground floor. Eleven times Louisa had looked at him. Six that he'd heard her speak. When she did say anything to him, it was to warn him about the dangers on the farm. It was bad to walk alone in the fields past the old barn. Worse to wake Netta from one of her sleeps. The little boots beside the bed stayed where they were, and when Louisa had to enter or leave the attic, he should step into the hall so she could pass through the bedroom without him there. He remembered standing with her in the kitchen once, and her face was close to his. She seemed to want something of him then. He wasn't sure he'd ever known what it was, but he wished he could remember. In the parlor one night, he came upon a stout old book left open to a series of journal entries written in dull brown ink. May 2. Warm and clear. Mended the fence and cleaned the chicken house. May 3. Went to town today. Bought powder, but didn't see anybody I wanted to see. They asked after Sophia, and I told them. May 4. An Indian girl came out of the woods. She says she used to live on the mountaintop, but she had to leave when the men came and built their roads on it. Says she was some sort of queen up there. I've made her a room at the top of the house, and she'll do cooking and cleaning in exchange. I asked her if that was the sort of work a queen could get used to, and she said she wanted to forget the good things. I told her this was the right place for it. May 5. Went along the border this morning. Figured out they like scrap wood and metal, buttons, sweets, worn boots. Do not like worn clothes, day-old bread, jam. Roll came into the room and found him reading. My grandfather cleared this land, he said, though the house is older. He showed Cyrus a map of the farm, pointed out the black square where the house stood, the 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Under winding its way through the wilds. The fields were bought from the natives for 20 beaver pelts, two casks of rum, five rifles, and a knife for each of the braves. It's cost us more than that in the end, but we need that border if only to pretend there's something that divides. Cyrus knew what he meant, and he knew better than to ask. On his first night in the house, after Roll had struck him with the boot on his wooden leg, Cyrus woke in the little room at the end of the hall. Netta brought him tea and sweet cakes, and Roll, twisting his hat in his hands, stood in the doorway and apologized as best he could. "'I mistook you,' was what he said. Then, in the morning, Netta presented him with his bowler hat. She'd mended the tear on the top with black felt. All the wood in that room was gleaming in the sunlight, and Cyrus, still unfamiliar with the rules, had asked her why it was so clean there. "'Our son William was running out of ways to hurt us,' she said. "'This was his room, and this was where he found one more way.' Her face did something funny then, and she sat down on the polished floor and went to sleep. Roll and Cyrus worked a long day in the farthest field. They were silent through the morning because of the rule they had, silent through the afternoon because by then they were used to the quiet. When the cart was loaded with as much squash, turnips, and beets as mule could pull, they sat on a rock and smoked a pipe together. Men were working out on the wall of Manitou. Below the hotel, the slope bore a great vertical scar, a black trench between ridges of red trees, and every minute another tree fell and was dragged down the mountain. Seeing this, Cyrus felt a strangeness come over him. The stone was beneath him, Roel's pipe smoke was in the air, yet he knew he was not in the field with Roel, not on the farm at all. He was on the mountainside with those other men, checking their work against a map he had somehow made. Roel saw Cyrus squinting, saw his hand shaking a little when he took the pipe. But Cyrus didn't say anything about it, and Roel didn't ask. The strangeness lessened as they walked Mule back along the marches. 
Nettis' stew helped, and so did a few hands of cards with roll. But when Cyrus went upstairs, he fetched the canvas sack from under his bed and laid its contents over the mattress. He'd brought this sack downstairs one morning and asked if it was something the spirits wanted, but Roll had broken the rule to say to him, You'd be an idiot to part with your tools, Cyrus Makeley. His tools? He touched each of them, trying to understand. There was an instrument that looked like a telescope, another he recognized as a magnetic compass, a little book full of numbers and charts. He put them back under the bed and went to the window. The lanterns were in the pines again. On the last night of the harvest, Louisa came into Cyrus's room without knocking. He got up to leave, but she blocked his way and looked him in the eyes. It was the twelfth time she had done so. She said, "'You have work to do.' And Cyrus thought, Seven. She took his shirt-sleeve and led him to the attic door. He had put his ear to it once to listen to her singing, but he had never dared to open it. Now she opened it for him and took him up the stairs. The attic was lit with the yellow glow from the lanterns outside. The light reached everywhere, making long, mazy shadows over the rafters. In the farthest alcove was Louisa's room, a mattress on the floor, a chest of drawers, a desk. Louisa lit a candle, and Cyrus saw a book, a page dominated by an ornate letter F. Below was a drawing of the sun setting on, or rising over, a broad meadow. F is for forget, the legend read. I've been learning my letters, said Louisa. Cyrus flipped to the first pages and read aloud. A is for absence. B is for bulwark. C is for ca... ca... Cacophony, Louisa finished. Netta made it for me. The more I learn, the more I forget. The alphabet helps a lot. But it's time for you to remember some things, Cyrus Makeley. There isn't much for you and me in this world together until I finish my forgetting and you finish your remembering. Do you understand? He was too bewildered to speak, too afraid that he would say the wrong thing and be marched back downstairs. He asked, Does it have to do with your mother? Was it her mother who came to this farm from the mountaintop? She frowned and shook her head. Questions distract, she said. Truth now. You've forgotten how to use your instruments. She stood close to him, just as she'd done that day in the kitchen. You were going to help build a train, she whispered. They've started without you. It will go straight up the side of the mountain, drawn by cables. You told me about it in your sleep, when you first came here. He rubbed the top of his head with his hand. A new kind of train, he said. Louisa kissed him. It was a careful kiss, but Cyrus didn't mind. He thought, one. She stepped back and looked at him, waiting as though for a transformation of some kind. And Cyrus remembered, remembered the steamship ride up the Hudson, remembered landing at that odd little town on the creek, the boarding house above the tavern, the drunks in the street who argued over which of them owned the fattest hog, 
then the long trip up the mountain with the other guests of the hotel. How they complained about the jouncing stagecoach, his meeting with Mr. Beach on the promontory, their places for the elevated railway. It's beautiful on the mountaintop, he said to Louisa. I'll take you there. We'll stay at the hotel and walk the trail to the waterfall, and when we come back there will be dancing in the ballroom. There is nothing like the view. You can see three states from up there. Or, or is it four? I guess it depends on whether you count this one. I count none of them, Louisa said. Do you still remember how to use your instruments? Triangles, Cyrus said, surprised and a little giddy. Triangulation. You have to look at the same thing from two different places. That's how you know where it sits on the earth. Good, she said. But there are rules, so listen close. A young man wearing a sack suit and a bowler hat walked the trail along the fetid fields, a canvas bag slung over his shoulder. He went to the only place on the farm where anything grew. The meadow was emptied of its crops now, and only brush and stalk remained. Cyrus checked his compass and saw that North was keeping true. He took the tripod out of the bag and set it on its feet, placed the theodolite on top. It was a clear day, and even without it he could see straight across the fields. He made some notes, then peered through the lens. There was the caved-in barn, there the old chicken-house. He also saw, coming toward him over the field, a young boy, shirtless and barefoot. When Cyrus looked with his naked eye, the field was empty. When he looked through the theodolite again, the boy was only a few feet away. "'Do you need some help?' the boy asked. Cyrus reached into his bag and pulled out a small pair of boots. He'd broken a rule when he'd brought them. He tossed them onto the ground, and once the boy had them on and laced, Cyrus could see him plainly. "'I do need your help. Do you think you could help me see it the way it was before? Before your great-grandfather cleared the fields?' The boy was happy with his boots. "'What's your name?' he asked. "'I don't remember.' Cyrus said. The boy stopped smiling. Liar, he said. Bed-stealer. They don't love you, you know. She doesn't love you. Cyrus shrugged and made some more notes. It's still morning, he said, so we probably shouldn't be talking. We're not allowed to talk in the morning. That's a stupid rule, the boy said. He held his chin up, and Cyrus could see the red line beneath it. He went on with his work while the boy paced back and forth beside him, getting impatient. "'Do you know why they made that rule?' he asked. Cyrus shook his head. "'It's because of me. It's because we always argued in the morning.' "'What about?' The boy shrugged. "'I don't know.' He suddenly looked bashful. "'What's it like now?' he asked. "'In the morning, I mean, without me there?' Cyrus looked out over the fields. "'It's quiet,' he said. "'Your mom makes breakfast. "'She looks at your dad like she's mad about something "'and he pretends not to notice. "'But it's warm in the kitchen and the kettle's on the stove. "'Sometimes you can hear the boarder upstairs singing.' 
the boy looked where Cyrus was looking. Has Louisa finished her forgetting yet? he asked. Almost. The boy bent down to clean a speck of mud off his boot. I guess I could help you, he said. I wish you would tell me your name, though. Cyrus didn't respond, but when he next looked through the lens, the lifeless fields were gone. In their place he saw one great meadow, green and shadowed by a few tall pines. The sun was at its edge. It was the meadow from Louise's book, and he still couldn't tell if the sun was rising or setting. Roll and Cyrus took the cart into town, stopping often to move fallen limbs off the road. No one had been this way in a long time, and there were a lot of limbs to move. When they arrived at the market, it was no longer morning, and Roll said, I have something for you. He reached under his seat and pulled out his grandfather's journal. I've read it a dozen times, but maybe you can make better sense of it. Cyrus opened the book. He'd seen several parts of it, but now he turned to the last page and read the entry for September twenty ninth, 1843. What a fool I've been. They don't light the lights. They are the lights. He closed the book and set it beside the other things in his bag, then hopped down from the cart. The map was in his coat pocket. He unfolded it and showed it to Roll. Roll blinked at the paper, and it shook in his hands. Why did you do this? he asked. It wasn't the question Cyrus expected. Why? Because Louisa wanted it, because all three of them wanted it, he'd thought. He said, So you can stop pretending. So you can talk in the mornings again. Roll got down off the cart and stood close to Cyrus, began to unstrap his leg. I knew you from the start, he said. Cyrus took a step back and Roll swung at him, but his eyes were watery and he missed. I didn't mistake you, Roll said. He hopped on his one leg, and with his next swing he fell to the street. Tears were on his face. My boy, Roll shouted into the bricks. He said to Cyrus, I knew what you were from the start. Cyrus avoided the eyes of the gathering townsfolk. Roll tried to pull himself up with his leg, but fell again. He was still on the ground when Cyrus turned and started walking faster. Winter, 1890 It was too cold to sleep in the attic, so Louisa spread her blankets on the kitchen floor near the stove. She would tend the fire through the night, then make breakfast before the others woke. While Roll sharpened his tools and Netta red or patched clothes, Louisa knitted. She often forgot what she was doing, though, and once she made something that was a sock at one end, a cap at the other, and a scarf in the middle. She made a game out of counting the number of times Netta nodded off each day. The woman spent more time asleep than awake now. She still cooked and cleaned, but she did it all with her eyes closed, and not very well. She talked in her sleep, too. One day she asked Louisa, "'Do you remember when I was a little girl?' And you told me how you used to cut up the old moons into stars? No, Louisa said. I don't remember that. They put Mule in the pantry, and he was happy to lie there with a sack of potatoes for a pillow. He was old, though, and when Louisa went to feed him one morning, she found him dead. 
it took all three of them to drag him out into the snow. Louisa often thought of the land surveyor. His new map was hung in the parlor, and he'd given her his compass before he left. She thought maybe she could use it to find him, but it must have been broken. It always pointed in the same direction. On sunny days, she strapped on her skates and went out to the pond. The sweep of the blades over the ice made her feel she was forgetting something, and that made her smile, though she didn't know why. It was on one of those days that she saw Roll shoveling snow off the front steps, saw the boy walk out of the woods and right up to the porch. He wasn't wearing a shirt, but he didn't seem to mind the cold. "'Can I help you now?' he said. Roll leaned forward on his shovel, closed his eyes. He was quiet a long time. "'Yes,' he said. The boy kicked snow with his boot, waiting. Roll said, Yes, William. You can help now. Later she found the prince in the snow leading away toward the woods. She went inside to tell Netta, but Netta was asleep on the stairs. Louisa was in bed one morning, sitting up with a book in her lap. She stayed in Netta's room now. Roll had been gone three days, but at night Louisa heard the thump of his wooden leg downstairs. The rhythm was too quick, though, and she thought someone other than Roll must have been wearing it. Netta was asleep and seemed happy to stay that way. She talked a little but wouldn't eat, and she appeared most content when Louisa read to her. She hadn't opened her eyes since Roll left. Louisa read, H is for happenstance. I is for indisposed. J is for jinx. She heard a knock at the front door, and the noise startled her from the bed. She couldn't remember the last time someone had knocked. She went downstairs to answer it, smoothing her dress with her palms. A young man stood on the porch, hat in hand. The snow was gone, and a carriage was waiting in the yard. I thought I would never get my job back, Cyrus said. But it turns out they're building trains everywhere these days. Why are you here, then? she asked. He fiddled nervously with his hat. I forgot my compass, he said. Summer, 1899 Despite his familiarity with the railway, Mr. Makeley found the ride up the mountain unsettling. It was the groaning of the iron cables that troubled him, they seemed always about to burst. Mrs. Makeley, however, didn't mind that at all. She turned round and round in her seat, looking for the best view of the valley. It was their anniversary. A few nights before, he had found her in the sitting-room of the townhouse, reading the old journal Roll had given him. Over her shoulder he read, May 8. The Indian girl's a decent cook. She wouldn't tell me her name. Said she needs a new one anyway. I told her she could have my mother's and Sophie's old blue dress, too. When she finishes forgetting things, she says, she'll start to grow old. I told her not to hurry. Such strange people, Louisa said. Who were they? He caressed her shoulder. I'm not sure I could tell you, he said. On the stone promontory in front of the hotel, Mr. Beach's sons had mounted a great electric spotlight, 
It served some practical purpose, but management allowed the guests to use it to play games of tag with steamboats on the river twelve miles away. They look like boots with cigars stuck in them, a drunken guest explained. When Mrs. Makeley's turn with the spotlight came, Cyrus pulled a notebook from his pocket. I did some calculations, he said. If you aim it a little to the left, about fifty degrees below the horizon, you should be able to touch the old farmstead. Either she didn't hear him or she didn't understand. She pointed the great finger of light at the river and almost immediately found a steamship. The boat flashed its own light, as if to signal surrender, and the other guests on the promontory cheered. "'I caught one,' she said. Wow. What an amazing story. I must admit, I was a little puzzled as to what was going on, but after a while, the beauty of the story and those characters just took me away. I love stories like that. Anyhow, on to our second story for the day. For the Love of Paul Bunyan was written by Fritz Swanson. Fritz is a contributing editor at Print Magazine, the nation's oldest graphic design magazine. He teaches creative writing, essay writing, and literature at the University of Michigan. And his writing has appeared in The Believer, Best American Fantasy, McSweeney's Mid-American Review, Aesopus, and The Christian Science Monitor. You can have a look at fritzswanson.com to see more. The narrator of this fine tale is a lovely gentleman by the name of Peter Cavill. Peter is a writer of speculative fiction, playwright, composer, sound artist, and performer. He lives with his wife and son in Toronto, where he teaches musical improv at the Second City. For details on his projects and adventures, check out petercavill.com. So, here we have For the Love of Paul Bunyan, by Fritz Swanson. For the Love of Paul Bunyan, by Fritz Swanson. She was tender, soft as a sand dune after a windstorm. Back in the before days, she would wake up and stretch those arms out across the sky, her left hand arched over Baffin Island, her right curled up under her jaw, her elbow casting a swaying shadow over the jackpine forests of Saskatchewan. She was a tangle of stretching and yawning, and I would let slip a quiet sigh from where I lay, snuggled down along the south shore of Lake Erie my head pillowed up on the Adirondacks. Clouds would cling to her ears. If she got lost in a bit of work, say, weeding the plains of Iowa or cleaning gunk out of Old Faithful, she could get a whole murder of crows caught up in her crazy black hair. Sometimes, if she needed the room, she'd gather up a flock of wheeling starlings in her cupped hands. Gentle as any mother bear, she would carefully move them down into the belching swamps of Cuba, out of her way, or off into the air over the blue calm seas of the Grand Banks in June. God, how she cared for things, polishing the mountain ice in winter, scrubbing the granite shoreline of Maine come spring, and the soup she could make, cooked up in a hot spring kettle in the heart of Yellowstone, the rich aroma of creamed potatoes and apples clouded the air back then. 
But she wasn't all cherries and milk, either. Once, in a fit, after we'd fought, she tripped me, and I came down hard on my left hand and dug out a huge print in the mud. And one time she kissed me like a river, so hard I didn't come around again until the glaciers had retreated, and little men were all abroad in the land, stalking the bigger cats, that is, the ones big enough that I could scare her with one by hiding into the toe of her boot. And the land looked transformed after a while, and then I realized that she was gone. But I think now that everything in the before days was a fuzzy cloud of mists and rains and sweet fruit. It was like moss and green sprouts and black loamy earth. But that cloud of tender is also a shroud of regret, free-floating, for I cannot remember where our fight started or over what. And worse, I have the sense that my own, my, my sense of that time was of laying about and consuming. Her absence is a great mystery to me now, in this smaller time where the bears roam, and I feel that I have become so much less. I wonder about her rage. I find myself constantly wandering the woods around that great handprint of mine, which, I suppose, has grown so much larger than me. The mud print pushed up a pile of dirt, which became a hill, then a mountain, then a great land amongst lakes. Finally... I found myself raging as the trees rose up around me. The trees loomed, and the shadow of my life filled the air amongst a closing cave of teeth and obscurity. And I knew, quickly, that as things were going, soon I wouldn't even be able to see the next county, let alone all the way to the sea. And how are you supposed to find a woman in this damn world if you can't see both seas at once? If she isn't on one coast, she could be on the other, and you'd have to walk all the way just to check. Her space is huge and hidden and covered in so many layers of shadow. I feel that it was just a little thing that we fought over, something small. But she made me feel so large. And in amongst all that, the little things seem fuzzy, and I cannot see. I felt, and, and she... That was when I started cutting, hacking, sawing, beating, tearing down... And now I find that the little men have grown a bit, and they need cutters, and I need to cut, to clear, to make open and plain the whole of the land, so that I can see. God, let me see far. And that, my dear listener, is that for our very first show in our regular time slot. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. And don't forget to tune in next week for our second show, where we'll be playing you stories by A.A. Atanasio and Shauna Graham. A big thank you, of course, goes to all the authors and the narrators who do this for free for the love of the stories. Remember that we operate on a Creative Commons 3.0 Share and Share Alike license. You can share it, you can download it, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. Thanks for joining me here today, or tonight. Tell your friends about Farfetched Fables. Go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Oh heck, just visit the website next week. I'll see you there. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.